Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the gospel according to Luke. I'm going to give a, share some thoughts and reflections on the two bodies of Jesus. And just in case uh, you might get confused, this is, uh, this is what they look like. So uh, if you get a little bit confused, there's two different Jesuses. This one uh, has the halo here. And so that's, that's the Jesus you know and love. This is another Jesus. Uh, we'll get to that. That'll make sense in a little second. But that's a little bit of a difference why that B is on top. Um, so as I get started, I want to first uh, share a disclaimer. Um, for those of you who have been around Spark or uh, have been with us for some time, you know that every now and then we'll share some thoughts and reflections. And part of what we do during this time is that we learn together. We corporately learn together. And so sometimes that means that, um, and I think uh, I, have, I have a tendency to do this, which is I'm getting ready for Sunday um, and then I'm just wrestling and I'm like, I think I'm going in a direction that I, I feel like the text is leading. But there may be some other directions or nuances that I'm missing. And so I offer that as a disclaimer to you to say a couple things. Number one, there's a, hopefully a humility in that. That the kind of teaching that we do is uh, to offer to the congregation, to offer to our community some thoughts and reflections that we hope are going to be helpful um, and provocative. But you are also going to come up with some perspectives or ideas that are also going to be informative. It's part, it's not your job to just sit and listen and to take in and to believe everything that I say, except what I just said, except with that, that, that you're supposed to take in and believe. Your job is to engage and wrestle with the text as much as anybody up here does. That's what a Christian is. That's what a follower of Jesus is, not just to listen to one interpretation. So I just want to offer that as a suggestion and a thought because I have throughout my years of Spark been so incredibly blessed by the various perspectives that you all bring. So I just want to uh, make sure you recognize. Second, I want to share a heads up. I'm going to be talking, I'm not going to be talking in depth, but I'm going to be talking very briefly and mentioning uh, sources of trauma. So I'm not going to go into depth, but I just want to let you know that I'm going to be mentioning it. Um, I feel like that would be just a courteous thing to do. That'll be coming towards the end. Um, and then third, because of the passage that we've got today, it ends, um, it ends pretty despairingly, actually. I mean, this is part of the problem of going through section by section is that there's some sections of our text in our story, which if you, like, if that were the end of the story, it'd be like, oh, well, well, shoot, thanks for that. That bummer didn't need to come to, to that Sunday. But our text and our story is a much longer one than that. So even though I'm covering a particular portion, I want to remind you that this isn't the end of the story. And I'll, I'll make reference to that at the end of the message. But I just want to remind you of that, that when you get to certain passages that are going to end on perhaps a dark note or, or something where you're like, I can't believe that's in there, or I can't believe that's the reality or that's the truth. Just reminder that the ultimate story has to go through that. By the way, that's one of the axioms that you can consider is that the only way, th- uh, the only way out of anything is through something. You've got to go through it in order to get out of it. And so that's actually part of the brilliance of our Jesus narrative is that there's some stuff that you're really going to have to go through. We're going to start in Luke chapter 22 a little bit and then head into Luke chapter 23. Just a reminder of where we've been. Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, and then tried. It's at the culmination of the darkest part of Jesus of the Jesus story right before the crucifixion where he is betrayed by the people that are closest to him. Um, He's going to be arrested and tried, even though he's an innocent person. And if you were to just read this story based upon not a theological counting, but just like what is happening to this guy, you would think, why in the world is this person being treated in this particular way? 
And I sometimes think we miss that particular piece, which is the emphasis that I'd like to share with us uh, this evening for us to consider. So let's start in uh, Luke 22. We're going to read a significant portion of this text. I'm going to stop along the way, point out some things. If you have your Bible, this is a great time to circle and make notes or take notes on your phone or whatever you feel comfortable doing, because there are some there are some nuances and hints and clues that the text is giving us that are not always readily available to us, but you'll, I hope to point out some of those. And this is just a sampling of some of those things. Verse 66 of chapter 22. Uh, and as it became day, the elders of the people gathered, chief priests and scribes, and they led him into the council. They said, if you are the Christ, Messiah, tell us. Christ and Messiah are uh, synonyms. They're the same, just different languages. He said to them, if you say, you will not, if I say, you will not believe. But if I ask, you will not answer. But from now, the son of man will be sitting at the right hand of the power of God. So immediately here in verse 22, I want you to point out a very important word, which is the. Now, those are the definite article. There is a question that the chief priests and the elders, the religious people are asking him because the religious people understand that there is a, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that is supposed to come and redeem. So when this happens here, notice that definite article, the, they're pointing something out, which is going to be very different when you get to a text later on. Um, part of the story of the the here is that the long trajectory of the development of what the Christ or the Messiah is, is going to come uh, from bringing in stories and passages from the Old Testament that they would have had in mind, that they would have remembered. This is one of my favorites from Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers, that, and I put it in brackets because even though it's a masculine plural uh, noun, it's really meaning siblings, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together as one, when there are no divisions, when we are together, when we are like-minded. This is a theme that shows up frequently. And here's the statement. It is like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that comes down upon the collar of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon that comes down on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. That precious oil is the theme, is the idea, is the word of the Messiah, the Christ. And so when you're referring to Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. You're referring to the expectation that somebody is going to come with this kind of anointing to make that happen. Life, blessing forever. Are you the one that's going to do that? This is their question. Now, the other thing to recognize here is, but from, from now on, the Son of Man will be seating at the right hand. This is a um, euphemism. It's a phrase to mean an honored place. And then in the middle of these two phrases is what I call the bind. It is to say that they are asking a question of which they do not want an answer. And they are posing a dilemma of which there is no solution. If Jesus confesses, they're not going to believe. And if they actually ask, uh, and if he asks them to actually confess, they're not going to answer. It's kind of a circular argument. Have you ever been accused of being in denial? And you say, no, I'm not. If you are being accused of living in denial, there is no way out of that circular argument. Are you with me? No, I'm not in denial. No way. 
This is a very similar kind of rhetorical device that's happening here. They are asking him a question of which they do not want an answer. And so they're kind of sticking him in that regard. Let's go on. All of them said, are you then the son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from ourselves with his own mouth. And I love that throughout this passage, the author of this text is setting up this really devious rhetorical accounting that even though he, the the people are not believing that he is the Messiah, they are going to constantly actually confess that he is along the way. And it's this really beautiful poetic rhetorical device that's happening in the text that they keep saying, are you this? And they're saying that again, because of the bind, not actually believing that he is, but yet somehow confessing that he actually is. And so it's going to set up in many ways, a ridiculousness of this kind of trial. Then the whole assembly rose, uh, led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ the king. So Pilate asked, Are you? Are you the king of the Jews or the Judeans? Jesus replied to him, You say so. Do you, do you see it again? It's all over here. Now, notice a couple things. Notice there's no definite article, which means that there's another possible reading of this. When they ask Jesus the question, are you the Christ? Are you like the one that we're all expecting? Then when they go to Pilate, they ask him, uh, they tell him that he is claiming to be not, there's no definite article, the anointed one, the king. In other words, they're changing their story depending upon their audience. Now that they're in front of Pilate, they're, they're, they're putting up a, a slightly different argument that is going to be more agreeable to Pilate, going, wait a second, king, excuse me? So it's kind of like saying now he claims to be anointed the king. You see where it's going on here? I mean, it's really, the, the rhetorical twists are just really brilliant in here. Also, again, the confession and the proclamations, this is both false and true right? He is subverting the nation, but not in the way that they think that he's subverting the nation. And he is not opposing payment uh, of taxes to Caesar, which is what they're interpreting his actions earlier on. For those of you who know that passage where he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They say that, okay, we're going to use that against him. This entire thing is about twisting words and creating a narrative and a story that's going to be condemnatory to this Jesus. And then switching up Messiah to king, adding that in there. Just a quick note, whenever you see the word Jews in your Bible, it's very possible it also means Judeans. Uh, That would be the uh, geographical location in the southern part of Israel located right here. And generally speaking, the, the political divisions of that day were divided into three main portions, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And Pilate was over that southern portion. And we have Herod, which is over the northern portion of Galilee. And so when he's asking this question of claiming to be king of the Jews, this is actually kind of a direct, like, wait, are you threatening my power, my throne, the the area that I'm supposed to be responsible for? And then Jesus replied to him, what? (laughs) I love it. You said so. You know, it's, it's, it's brilliant that they're not saying everything that they are actually saying, or they're saying what they're not supposed to be saying. They're making this accusation, but the reality is they're also in the midst of it making declarations and confessions. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. 
But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he even, where he began even to this place. Wait a second. He's from Galilee. Wait a second. I got to change that around. There's the accusation declaration again. And once Pilate hears this, wait a second, Galilee, not my jurisdiction. I want no, that's somewhere else. He asked whether a man was from Galilee. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, get up there, get north. I'm like, I'm not going to get in trouble with the Roman emperor by doing an illegal trial here. So that's going to play into this story. Pilate is stuck in some ways. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had been waiting to see him for a long time because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. I love this because this is a reference back to Luke chapter 9 where Herod's like, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear? I, I, I can't tell me about this Jesus. I want to see Jesus. And when Herod finally sees Jesus, it's at the trial. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Ping pong. Now, this elegant robe is most likely a reference to the story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. One of the most difficult passages regarding the afterlife in heaven and hell and who has and who doesn't. And the condemnation that comes upon the rich man and the salvation that comes to Lazarus. And there he is in the background. This is, a um, oh shoot, I just forgot the name of the artist who painted that. See that he has good things while the beggar in front is just begging the servant boy for something. So this elegant robe on him may be some sort of indication or hint or clue that they are suggesting maybe that Jesus actually, or they're accusing Jesus of having this kind of posture position. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And here we go. We have two jurisdictions, Pilate in the south, Herod in the north. They had been enemies before, and now they've got this problem. The, Jew, the, the religious people are there trying to create all this muck, and now they've become friends. I hope you're starting to see the social, political, and religious machinations that are happening. There's all sorts of attempts of manipulating, of coercing, of changing. I mean, this trial is jacked up. That's the original Hebrew. And Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence and not found this man guilty of any of the charges that you say that you have against him. And neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. The, the truth of the matter being spoken by the Roman governor. This is a twist. Like, isn't the truth of the matter supposed to come from the people who are the chief priests and the teachers of the law? No, the truth of the matter is actually coming from the Roman. I will therefore have him flogged and released him. That, oh, he has done nothing. There's the confession and the declaration. And this word flogged is the word pedea, which is where we get our word pedagogy. You could easily translate this, therefore, I'm just going to teach him a lesson. So it's not so much a beating as it is, I'm just going to give him a nice little slap on the wrist and send him on his way. I'm going to just teach him a lesson. That's about all I'm going to do. That's really significant because Pilate, as governor, has the ability to do much more. 
This is a famous uh, painting by Cesare, the Ecce Homo, which is Behold the Man. And this is kind of the scene. Uh, the, the artist here is trying to capture the sentiment of what's going on. Art critics have noticed how nobody in the scene is looking, you can't see their faces, is looking in this direction except for one person. And that is Pilate's wife, right here. This is the only full face that you can see in the image. And the general suggestion is the reason why we can't see the full face is because what's happening in the story is exactly that. Nobody is actually showing their true full selves. Everything is being manipulated. Everything is being mucked up and around. Then they all shouted out together, away with this fellow, release Barabbas to us. This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, saying, crucify, crucify him. So once again, Pilate is being shown to be weak, ineffectual. This word insurrection is really interesting because it's the word stasis, which if you ask the octars, you know exactly, they know exactly what the word anastasis means, which is if you see Anna running around here, which is the word for resurrection. So Barabbas is being accused, he's been in prison for a stasis, and what's happening, what's going to happen to Jesus later on is anastasis, is a resurrection. So again, there's this play on words here. And, oh, sorry, I forgot, I had that slide there. The word Barabbas is an Aramaic term that means son of Abba. Bar, meaning son, if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah, that would be the son of the commandments. So bar, and many of you know the word Abba. That's a very popular term that's known in Christian circles. Son of the father. Does anybody know it? Anybody want to guess what Barabbas' first name is? Does anybody want to guess? Kind of gave it away at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, his first name is actually Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 26, 16, it is actually listed there and mentioned there that Barabbas' first name is Jesus. So it says Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus Bar-El or Bar-Yosef, depending upon however you want to translate Jesus of Nazareth. Um, what's fascinating is you wouldn't get this normally even if you are reading the NIV. The NRSV actually has Jesus, the translated name of Jesus, in their translation, but the NIV doesn't translate Jesus, to which you're going like, what? Why? Hello? So depending on what translation you read, you may or may not actually capture the idea that Barabbas' name is actually Jesus. You can see it you can see it down there. So here we have the two Jesuses. They're both being held by Pilate. They're both being accused. They're both essentially on trial. And the question at this particular stage of the drama is what's going to happen to those two? One of them we know is guilty, insurrection and murder. The other one we know is innocent. Pilate and Herod said so. So here's the drama. That's what's taking place. And as you can guess, given all of the drama that's happened before, things are not going the way that they're supposed to be going. A third time, he said to them, For what evil has he done? I have found in him, him, no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore teach him a lesson, have him flogged, and then release him. And for those of you who know the long history of your text, anytime you see a third time, this is 
stated there for emphasis, like completeness, totality. I'm, okay, a third time. Are you sure about this? Multiple times, three times you'll see to emphasize this completeness or totality. Pilate is wanting to make sure, you, do you really want to go through with this? But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. And here's where the story doesn't end, end well. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. There is the end of our reading for today. The trial of Jesus and all that we just went through is a constant ping pong, back and forth, twist and turns, words being said that are supposed to be said in different directions, confessions that are being made, accusations. None of this is actually making sense. And it's all setting up this drama for this ultimate end. And here's, here's what's just kind of painfully fascinating about this story is that the person who we know is guilty, who everybody knows, the crowd knows it, Pilate knows it, everybody knows that this man, Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas is guilty. He goes free. And the man that we know is innocent, that Pilate knows, even the crowds know, even the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the religious leaders know that person who's innocent is condemned. There are three main elements to these two Jesuses that I would like to explore a little bit more. And here's where my disclaimer jumps in. Here are my thoughts and reflections for us to consider. And I would love for you to take these home, to mull on them. And to consider how they apply. I mean, I've had some people tell me, just tell me how this applies to my life. Well, I may not know how this applies. But here are my thoughts and provocations. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. How does this apply? How does this work? I've got some ideas, some thoughts. The innocent and the guilty. The complicit and the implicated. And then the bodily consequences of that delinquency. It is very commonly known for any of you who have been around Christians or Christianity or church, that when we talk about Jesus's death, we talk about Jesus dying for me. That was actually the very first rendition of the story that I heard when I became a Christian. The reason why you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the reason why you become a Christian is because what happened in this story is that Jesus died for you. In fact, I've even heard it said that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he had me in mind. And it's an extremely personal and very um, moving idea that the very death of Jesus uh, is in many ways that deeply personal to me. I wonder how much of this actually emerges from the story that we just read and the story that's going to continue regarding his crucifixion. And without taking anything away from the personal, real, true, meaningful sense that Jesus died for you, to simply distill the entire Jesus story in the trial down to Jesus died for me, in my humble opinion and reading of the text, seems to be missing a huge piece of what this story is trying to do. Um, this gentleman, Forklid 
Jakobsen. Try saying that five times fast. Jorklid Jakobsen wrote this incredible book, Treasures of Darkness, A History of Mesopotamian Religion. He is considered one of the foremost Assyriologists in the world. He's written extensively on Mesopotamian religion and the development. That's really important for your Old Testament story. But he writes something in here about the division of ideas about God because God was communal, was kingly, was powerful. But even in Mesopotamia, there was a shift to an idea of a personal God. And in observing that shift to a personal God, he writes this. God became personal when God was equated with luck, fortune, or a windfall. God became personal when God was equated with luck, fortune. In other words, something good happened to me. And therefore, the shift from a God that is a little bit more abstract or communal or kingly becomes much more centralized and personal to me. And I actually see that very same shift happening in the theologies that I grew up with and in many of the ways in which we construct this whole idea. The reason why I follow God or Jesus is because of the things that I get. It's very transactional. I I mean, for years I was taught, you know, to pray and and God will give. And so I prayed for parking spots. And for crying out loud, 95% of the time, every time I prayed for a parking spot, it was there. And it's beautiful. And I was like, yes. This is what evidences the truth of God and my faithfulness. And then I started thinking about how personal or self-centered or about how essentially that the entire story that we just read is really just about me and my parking spot at that particular point. And I'm obviously overemphasizing for effect, but the problem with that particular narrative is that throughout this story that we just read, you are not in it. The whole emphasis is between Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin and the crowds. And the reason why Jesus died is not because of you, but because of this broken world. The emphasis and the thrust of the story is not about what Jesus does for you, but is because of a consequence of the brokenness of these institutions and these people. And their inability to see the truth of the matter. And their inability to actually follow in Jesus' footsteps. To embrace a different way of being both in the religious, judicial, and political realms. That is the thrust of the story. All those things, all those passages that we just went through. Pilate is ineffective. Herod is just kind of like abdicating his responsibility. The crowds are bloodthirsty. The religious leaders feel threatened. Those are the reasons why Jesus ends up where he ends up. So what we're looking at in this story is Jesus died, not because of me. Now, again, I don't want to take anything away from your personal relationship. But in this story, in this story, Jesus died because the world is broken. And these people couldn't get their act together. They were blind to the justice that they were supposed to meet out. They cared only for their selfish needs, their positions, their power. They couldn't see it. And of course, this makes sense because for God so loved the world. Matthew 1, come to redeem people. You will name him Jesus. He will save people from their sins. This brokenness. I would like for us to consider carefully that while Jesus may have died for me personally, for us, for our sins, yes, I feel that personal connection. 
my personal relationship with Jesus and my transformation is connected to and is part of a much bigger, huge, large, massive, global, cosmic, redemptive transformation that this Jesus movement was intended to start. Not just here, the world. Ultimately, the delinquencies of this broken world ended up on a body. And this is my last kind of thought and reflection. Because these institutions couldn't get it together, it was not that they were condemned to eternal damnation in a dark, fiery place somewhere. Because these institutions couldn't get it together, the result was a body was broken. Somebody's body was actually assaulted, beaten, thrown around as some sort of proxy for people's pride and position. Ultimately, the brokenness of this world landed on a body. And this isn't something, this is, this is just ruminating new with me. I've always thought about this whole Jesus story in terms of spiritual categories. But, but this, is a, this is somebody's broken body that hurt, that suffered. And I'm going to suggest that we start thinking about the way of Jesus, demanding that we also take the body seriously. Because how we live out our faith actually manifests itself upon the body. In how we actually live, move, breathe, eat, etc. The end result of all of this, what happened ultimately upon these two Jesuses, the bodies of these two Jesus, Jesuses, can't say that, is that the guilty Jesus goes free, that's Barabbas, and the innocent Jesus is condemned. This entire story is about a cosmic redemption of the global brokenness of our world. And because of the global brokenness of the world, we see evidence of that brokenness manifest upon the bodies of these two men. As metaphors, examples, as pictures, as images, as spiritual realities of what happens when we do not follow in the way of Jesus. And when I started thinking about this and started thinking about how visceral, I mean, one of the reasons, for whatever you think about, you know, Mel Gibson and the Passion of the Christ, whatever you think about all of that, the fundamental essence of recognizing how brutal that was is the point of this story. It manifests itself upon the body. I started thinking about all sorts of different ways in which this has actually been true throughout all of history and most recently for us. I think about the Innocence Project. For those of you who know, it's a group of lawyers and advocates who are giving of their time and energy to redo cases, to retry cases where they know because of DNA evidence or whatever, that the guilty person in whatever crime was committed was actually set free because they decided to condemn a convenient person who was innocent. And so these group, this people, the, this group, the Innocence Project, are actually living out the redemption of this story. The guilty are free, but the innocent are condemned. And if you read those stories, oh man. It rips your heart out. Decades of people's innocent lives 
ruined as a result of us not getting our act together because of the brokenness of this world. I think about all of the unfortunate scandals. I told you this, this is the warning part. I was just going to mention some of these. The scandals that have hit in recent years. And one of the elements of those scandals regarding really bad actors and abuse within powerful institutions, religious institutions, United States gymnastics, etc. One of the main results of that is that the victims are told to be quiet and to shut up. We don't want to hear your story. But the perpetrators are the ones that get to go free. In many ways, that is being manifest. This very story that we've read is being manifest in the injustices of those kinds of abuses. And then I think about climate change. And if you read a little bit about what's been happening and with the fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel companies and all of the push to just continue life as normal, they continue to get subsidies and tax breaks, living well, getting rich. While the rest of the world who are suffering as a result of our carbon pollution the innocent ones who are emitting virtually zero carbon into the atmosphere, they are the ones who suffer. And the ones who, the greatest polluters are the ones who get to, I just start to see this all over the place. The story of the guilty Jesus going free and the innocent Jesus being condemned is still yet again being played out. And it's being played out upon people's bodies as a result. And then I remembered, oh my goodness, I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' book several years ago, Between the World and Me, when he quite brilliantly articulated. But all of our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience. That it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. Which is brilliantly articulated. Honestly, I wanted to throw up every single page of James Cohn's book, but obviously that's a little much. Of the cross and the lynching tree. A brilliant theological exposition of seeing this very same idea play out. And then I was reminded of my own personal journey. I'll be a little vulnerable here. This is one of my favorite books, American Born Chinese by Gene Luen Yang. It's a brilliant story about his own identity, his racial identity, being Chinese and American, his religious identity. He tells, he, he basically quotes Psalm 139 directly in the entire book in the story of the monkey king. It's, a bril- it's just a brilliant story. But he articulates throughout this story this tension and this, this identity crisis of, of seeing who you are and not knowing how you fit. And I look back in my journal of what I wrote When I read this book, and I wrote this. For years, I have even held a disdain for my ethnicity, a view that I am ashamed of to this day. Hatred for one's body is a unique kind of hell, a division of personhood that can never be reconciled as the forces of rejection come from both within and without. And I started to remember and started to reflect that the brokenness of this world manifests itself upon my very body, my sense of identity, and, that, and then, then there, for those of you, I mean, most of you know this, and then you feel it in your body. You feel it. 
which is absolutely sensical given everything that we know about trauma. I want to thank Mel, who was singing for recommending uh, what happened to you to me, and then for Yazi for introducing me to uh, Gabor Mate. And Adel, just for the record, I am recommending these books because I did read them. But all of these books are beginning to explore what trauma actually does to your body. It's not just an event that happens to you, but it actually manifests itself in your very neurology, in your hormones, in your chemicals, and you carry that with you throughout your life. The trauma that happens, the brokenness of this world, is not just an event that you pass through. This kind of trauma, this kind of brokenness manifests itself in your physical self. So when I think about this idea, this story of these two Jesuses, I think that's exactly what happened then. And that story was written so brilliantly to tell us that it continues to happen to this day, which is why following Jesus is so important. Last thought, and then we'll close. We have a theological proclamation, a theological doctrine called the incarnation. For those of you who've heard that word, for those of you who haven't, it's the idea that there is a God. God is in many ways abstract, but in Jesus, God became flesh, became one of us. And that is a beautiful way of empathizing with us. And so when we say incarnation, we are thinking of God taking on flesh as an act of condensation. God became one of us and became lower so that he could redeem and and uh, rescue us. But we don't really think of the incarnation as God taking on sin as well. We don't always think of the incarnation as manifesting the very brokenness of this world also upon that same very same body. So we can think of the incarnation in very beautiful theological terms, but I don't know if we've ever thought about the incarnation as, oh, God also was broken in God's body. And so just as the divine was embodied so too was the brokenness of the world also embodied. So when you think of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Barabbas, now that you should hopefully know the difference, think of the brilliant condescension that God did of the divine becoming one of us. But also think about this very same divinity embodying upon Jesus' own self the brokenness of this world, of all the institutions, and start to recognize that sin isn't something that just manifests itself in some sort of ethereal spiritual realm within my own psyche or soul. Sin manifests itself upon the body. It's here. That is also fleshly. And that's the end of our passage. Some of you are a little disappointed. I would just remind you that the story that we just read is only on Friday. This is Friday. Sunday's coming. You have to go through this, and the resurrection's coming. There is a redemption, there is a hope. So as much as this story ends on a sour, poor, traumatic note, this is only Friday. The story's not done, and the redemption and the hope is coming. And I just want to remind you of that as we come to a conclusion for today. Because there's one more 
element of the body that we do every single week that seems so apropos to our existence and our identity. Because every single week we come to this table and we recognize that we participate in a sacrament. We take on the juice and the bread. And we say these words every single week. And I hope that after today or after reading this passage and studying it and considering carefully just how meaningful and powerful. I mean, Jesus says, every time you do this, you proclaim my death. And I've always like, why can't communion be about happy things? And Jesus, you are proclaiming my death until I come again. And I start to see and recognize, oh, yes, the communion is that space in between the brokenness of the world upon the body and the redemption that is to come. That's where we sit. And so we participate in this act of communion to call forth, to call that forth, to lead it forth and to say, yeah, we know. We get it. We see. The brokenness of the world is represented here. And just like Jesus, as he took on that brokenness of the world and resurrected on the other side, transformed it once again. And we do the same. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we say each week, my friends, all are welcome at this table. As we sing, please come and partake. To all of you sparkers, may you know that there is a God who understands what it means and what it feels like to have a broken world manifest upon a body. And just like that body rose from the dead, may you too rise again to new life. And may we be that kind of people in this broken world to bring about the rescue and the redemption and the hope that this world so desperately, desperately needs. In Jesus' name, amen.